1: Welcome to New Books in Science Fiction. I'm Rob Wolf with the Hell Hath No Fury Like an Alien Scorned edition. Science fiction can do a lot of stuff. It can entertain, of course, or speculate about possible futures, or stretch the bounds of science with a dose of imagination, and it can also get us thinking about the way we live right now, today. The book my guest and I are going to talk about today has done all those things for me. It's Definitely entertained, even as it's gotten me to think about important and topical things like immigration, colonization, and even anger management. And it's introduced me to a place that no other science fiction novel has taken me to before, the U.S. Virgin Islands. The book I'm talking about is The Lesson, and its author, Cadwell Turnbull, is on the line with me now from Somerville, Massachusetts. Thanks, Cadwell, for joining me on the pod today. Thank you for having me. Before we go any further, I just want to give a shout out to the people of the Virgin Islands right now, which, as we're recording, is experiencing a hurricane. So I hope people, well, I hope everyone is okay, and it it, it turns out that there isn't too much damage and people aren't hurt.
2: Yeah, I think it's um, what I've heard so far. is lots of rain, um, some wind, but people are people are fine. Um, and I think it should be okay, but we've seen we've seen um, worse hurricanes. So hopefully everybody's going to be okay there.
1: Yeah, and I guess one hurricane is never the end of the story. Now, especially in our our weird weather on the planet right now, with the weather being so unpredictable.
2: Right, I, I think um, people in the Caribbean are are very worried about it because it's getting more frequent and they're getting stronger. So far, Dorian seems to be. I think it was last time I checked a Category Two, which isn't. Too bad. I guess you're a man with experience with hurricanes because
1: if you say a Category Two isn't too bad, I mean, as an as a New Yorker and a Midwesterner who used to do tornado drills when I was growing up, Category Two sounds scary to me.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think um, Irma was like a four or five, and those are the ones that um people like back home get really worried about. If it's like three, four, five, then they get um, a little sweaty. Two. I think we have the infrastructure to handle a little bit more. Well, in
1: the lesson, you are presenting the people of the Virgin Island with a different challenge. Why don't we start near the beginning? The, the lesson starts out with a series of vignettes that introduce your main characters, and there's sort of a countdown going on. Each vignette is prefaced with a day count starting with 15 days before, then 14 days before. And I thought maybe we could start the conversation with your explaining to listeners what happens on day zero.
2: Yeah, so on day zero, there's a scene where two of my main characters, Patrice and Jackson, are standing on the porch. And they're having a conversation about life things. And they see something in the sky. At first, it just looks like a dot. And then it grows and grows. And there's a, there's a long um, sequence where they try to guess what it might be. They think it might be a, a, a plane, then they think it might be a seaplane or a drone, and then eventually it turns out to be a giant seashell floating in the sky, which ends up being an alien spaceship, an Ena spaceship.
1: Exactly. These aliens, they're called the Ena, and I think one of the remarkable things about them and one of the remarkable things about your story is that after they arrive, there's this sense that not a lot has happened or at least not what I would have expected from what looks initially when this huge seashell-shaped spaceship arrives, like an alien invasion. And in my mind, an invasion is going to have all kinds of devastating and obvious consequences. But you frame it, and some of the characters do as well, as more of an arrival than an invasion. And your story jumps ahead five years, and there really haven't been any earth-shattering events in the interim, people have basically gotten on with their lives. You just mentioned Jackson. You know, his marriage was on the brink of falling apart, and it does in fact fall apart. And Patrice, who was a teenager, has now gone off to college in Pennsylvania. And the aliens seem to be integrated basically into the life of the Virgin Islands somewhat, which is their home base on Earth. And that isn't to say that the aliens don't do harm because they have really nasty tempers and they kill people almost impulsively if they feel threatened or if they get angry. But overall, it seems like a subtle invasion. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that.
2: Right. Um, So one of the things that I try to explore in the novel is how different people look at it. Some people do call it an invasion. And they have their own reasons for saying that. Um, some people might refer to it as an occupation, but the party line seems to be a rival. Um, that's what the, um, the the world government seem to think. And that's what some of the characters adopt. Um, Derek, one of my main characters, um, will correct people and say that they arrived, they didn't invade. But uh, as you said, um, it's a really complicated situation on the ground, even though they didn't technically invade and they offer trade in order to stay there. They're doing things that are traumatizing the local um, inhabitants and there's nothing that the locals can do about it, which which some might describe as an occupation. But one of the things that I really wanted to do was create a first contact scenario that wasn't Independence Day, like aliens come and they, they're they attacking and then all of humanity has to come together to fight the the, the alien threat. I wanted something a little bit more subtle and I also wanted something that wouldn't there wouldn't be a possibility of the world coming out on top the Ena are really advanced and so from the very beginning the world governments make a um a pretty a pretty smart decision to preserve their lives and their livelihoods by agreeing to the terms that the Ena provide one character Jackson who you mentioned initially who
1: saw them arrive he starts doing research. And and he's very interested in the history of invasion of the Virgin Islands. And so he places it in an interesting context through the eyes of a book he's writing, where he describes the various occupiers of the Virgin Islands. He talks about, and I'm probably going to pronounce this wrong, the Siboney, an indigenous... The Siboney. Siboney, who, yeah. who lived there for many hundreds of years. And then the Arawaks come and drive the Siboney away, and then the Caribs come, and then finally the Europeans come. And in that context, there's almost this sense that the Ina are inevitable or part of this chain of history with their own inflection of what it means to be overlords
2: of, of the Virgin Islands. Right. The Virgin Islands and the Caribbean generally has, they have this history of being the, the contact point of a lot of different civilizations. And this has been throughout its history, at least since their discovery. I'm, I'm using quotes around discovery. And so when Jackson is looking at the Ena and looking at the occupation, he's, he's looking at it through that lens of being a contact point and that it kind of makes a certain type of sense. That the Ina would arrive in the Caribbean, that the Ina would set up shop in the Virgin Islands, and he draws a lot of parallels to that scenario and the history of the Virgin Islands and all these different first native populations and then European nations.
1: What is in fact their mission? I mean, what do we what do we learn about what the Ina's mission is on Earth?
2: I think that in some ways interestingly the the Ena have a similar mission to a lot of the European nations that came and settled in the in the Caribbean. They were looking for resources and they were also looking for um expansion. And the Ena have a particular thing that they're looking for. It's I I think they would describe it as a resource that is really important to them and they've been searching the cosmos for it for quite a, quite some time. And they find or um, one of their, one of the ENA finds a possibility of this resource and its presence on Earth. And they bring a small population of Ena, about 500 ENA, to do more research on this and to figure out whether or not this is something that they can have and find on the planet. And I guess we don't want to blow the whole story apart by talking about
1: exactly what it is that they've been looking for. Their initial emissary Mira, the Ina who comes first, and she's actually, we learn, has spent quite some time on Earth before the story begins. She is emblematic of the way you portray all the characters in the book, which is that everyone is kind of good and bad. I mean, there are very few purely, I would say, evil characters. Mira is really in the middle. She's trying to protect and help everyone, you know, both uh, the Ina and the humans, it feels like you're careful to spread the goodness and the badness among Ina and human alike.
2: Yeah, I I think maybe there's a there's an Ina called Okaios, and he's probably the only mostly evil character. I think he also has some wrinkles in there. But there's um I I thought it was really important to have it be messy. I think that there's a lot of things that I was trying to talk about and look at in my own culture that the Ina bring out by being there. One of the things that I try to try to render on the page is um, toxic masculinity and how how that would play out in a Caribbean setting with the with the arrival of the Ina. There's a lot of men in the story that are trying to defend their honor or defend the honor of people that they've lost or that have been harmed by the Ina. And some of those decisions aren't necessarily um, wise, um, but they also aren't completely unjustified. I feel like a lot of people can relate to wanting to seek vengeance or wanting to revolt against this force that has kind of oppressed the island. And so I think it was a, um, a conscious decision of mine to have all of the characters, human and Ina like have, have their motivations and have, have stories to tell that weren't black and white, that there's a lot of gray just to sort of balance it
1: out. There was even like a super bad human too, who we don't, I don't think we ever meet him directly, but is referred to this guy, Woody, who we hear about, who it sounds like he was a a perpetrator of domestic violence.
2: Yeah, he sucks.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So were you tempted or has anyone said that the Ina are too sympathetic in some ways for a place that has Suffered colonization. I mean, you're you're telling a story about a place that has endured historical hardship at various points because of uh, at least the European invasion. I just wonder if that is something you thought about. Like they could be more evil, but they're not. They're mixed. They're a mixed bag.
2: I mean, in some ways, we use science fiction to talk about us, right, in the present and in the past, and when I think about um, colonialism generally, I do think that it was a, a great evil committed, but there's also a lot of a lot of cultural and historical reasons why it manifested the way it did. And giving a reason for it or talking about what might be the motivations of a a particular group isn't absolving them of responsibility for their acts. I don't think that by by explaining why the Ina are the way they are. I don't think I'm giving them a free pass from critique. They, they are responsible for the horrible things that they do. And despite whatever um, cultural or historical experiences um, drove them to, to be the way they are, that doesn't mean that they couldn't change. And um, Mira, I feel, is a really good example of the potential for change and that if they wanted to, they could have made different decisions. But they've, you know, they've kind of developed this sense of superiority over time. They think of themselves as superior. And that's how they act in the universe. And it's, it is a problem. I think that they would not see it that way. They would, not, they would not talk about it that way. But in the story, at least, I try to provide the counterpoint to their, their belief system.
0: slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
1: And humans, we kind of see ourselves as superior on Earth and can do what we want. I sort of I saw a parallel there as well, just our our lack of humility. And and that's kind of a point you make that the Ena leave humanity humbled really. They they change their, their view of themselves after their contact with the
2: Ena. Right, right. Or at least that's, that's my um, little bit of optimism. <laughs> I think that time will tell in the, in the world of the, um, of the story. But it seems to me that there would be some kind of reckoning happening among humanity. They would be thinking about who they are and what their place is in the universe and how they could be better to each other. But li- like the story itself, I, I, don't, I don't try to create what I would be what I would consider to be a really clean ending where we all come together and we all sing songs. I do think that there's a lot of ongoing conflicts that will have to be worked out, but there is at least a thoughtfulness that comes from the tragedy that happens in a book. And I thought it was important to at least point to that.
1: There's an interesting conversation going on, it seems to me, between religion and science and culture in the story. Derek's grandmother is a very religious Christian woman, and she finds Derek's romance with Mira to be completely unnatural. And that reminded me of what Some religious people talk about gay relationships, and there are, in fact, gay characters in your book, and there is, which is condemned by someone based on presumably their religious belief. And there's also, at the outset, Derek sort of rejecting his religious upbringing, and Patrice being a devoted church going young woman, and they're having a conversation about this even before the Ina arrived. So I was hoping maybe you could talk a little bit about what was going through your mind in terms of what the arrival of the Ina might do to someone's religious beliefs.
2: So I try to, in addition to talking about the conversation around colonialism and violence, I also try to look at some other thematic things that will come up. With the presence of uh, alien race coming to Earth, so one of the things that I try to explore is faith and how an alien presence would affect faith. And so you have characters that are already questioning their belief systems, and the Ina arrive and it it com- um it challenges it even more. And then we have characters that are really strong and devoted to their belief systems, and the Ina presence makes them dig their heels in. They- it solidifies their faith. And I thought it was important to show both sides. We have um, Derek's grandmother is devout before the Ina and even more devout after. It's a decision she makes. And I I try to do my best to justify that within the story, that it makes sense, even if people don't agree with where she's coming from and some of the beliefs she has. And But I also try to explore how people would respond to relationships with the Ina and people within the community, see it as unnatural to have relationships with them. And I draw some parallels to that and sexuality and relationships among humans. If you have any familiarity with the Caribbean, the Caribbean is, is very Christian, very devout, um, very conservative in their, in their worldview. And one of the things, and this is true also in the US Virgin Islands. And so I really wanted to have that conversation And, you know, in like we talk about science fiction being used to talk about things that happen with us, I was trying to have, draw a parallel there. It's not a clean parallel. I I don't think that it's the same thing at all. But um, there's a conversation between Derek and his his, um, sister, Lee, that kind of points to both of their feelings of being, both of them feeling like they don't belong within their community because they are they, there's parts of their identity that seem unnatural to other people. And it's something that I was, I wanted to critique. It's something I wanted to explore. And the, the Ina and the, the theme of aliens coming to earth was a really good way of trying to explore that in, in different ways.
1: Well, it's interesting because you also bring Derek and Mira together in a sense, partly around their shared feeling of not quite fitting in with their own cultures of origin. They're both outsiders in a way, and they have that in common.
2: Yes, yes. So Mira, because she's been living, and this is kind of a spoiler, I don't think it's a big one, because she's um she's been there longer than the other Ina, she has had the opportunity to to have relationships with human beings and to develop her... Her own morality next to humans and so when the Ina come um, she's kind of she's she's been a person within another culture for a very long time and she finds herself not seeing eye-to-eye with her own people and we have in Derek um, Derek Derek has always been I would say um, very open-minded and searching for for things outside of his culture and asking questions about his culture and so he finds with the Ina an opportunity to, to go further, and they find themselves meeting each other in a place where they're both isolated from their communities.
1: Well, let's talk about your background and the fact that you are from the U.S. Virgin Islands. I wonder how growing up in the U.S. Virgin Islands has shaped your view of the world. I guess that's a huge question, actually, but... You've grown up there, but you've gone to school in the States and you live now in the States. So maybe it's even more appropriate to talk about how it informs your, your writing, actually. You know, was it inevitable that you'd set your first book, you think, in the U.S. Virgin Islands? Is that the place your imagination returns to?
2: Yeah. I don't know if it would have been inevitable. I tried writing stories, I tried writing novels before the lesson and I just didn't finish them and they weren't set in the Virgin Islands. I guess that it's inevitable in the sense that once I started writing about home, something clicked for me. And I think that my um, giving myself the opportunity to have that conversation with the place where I was from allowed me to find my way into storytelling in a way that I feel is more meaningful. I think that a lot of the things that I was trying to explore in the novel, faith and sexuality and and relationships and violence and toxic masculinity, all of these things are things that I've had to to explore within myself, leaving the Virgin Islands and then going back to it and, and meeting, um, meeting it as a different person and feeling somewhat isolated. So in a lot of ways, Derek and Mira, um, and in other ways, Lee and um, Patrice feel like parts of myself. I feel like I'm in conversation with myself when I'm writing about them. And I, I think that allowed me to tell other stories. I, I sometimes write outside of the Virgin Islands. I do write about the Virgin Islands a lot. But when I do write outside of the Virgin Islands, it, it gives me a good framework to think about, well, how do I write people that are from other places? And I think about, well, how, what's their relationship to their identity? Um, what's their relationship to their the place where they're from? And um, what are the, some of the things that they bring with them throughout their lives from their childhood? And those are things that I, I learned through writing about home.
1: You got your MFA in creative writing and an MA in linguistics at North Carolina State University. And you also attended Clarion West. And I wondered about the origin of the lesson, and I read somewhere that some of the chapters were initially short stories. So I'm picturing that you put the book together over time, and because you were writing in these different settings, Clarion West being a workshop for science fiction and fantasy writers, and you have your MFA. So I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about how the book came together.
2: So sort of related to the to the last question you asked me, when I went to my MFA, I was writing stories at first that were far, far away from my own experience as a person. And so I was writing I was writing science fiction and fantasy stuff that that was my genre. Even then, I would the best way I would describe them is that they were wacky. Like I wrote a lot of wacky stories um, with a lot of strange things happening in them. And I would get, I would, I would submit those to workshop and my MFA had a science fiction professor that became my mentor, um, John Kessel, but the, it was for the most part, a literary workshop. It was um, contemporary realism, as some people would describe it. And so I would turn in these really wacky stories when everybody else was turning in very literary stories and I would get uh, a kind of um, a shrug in critique form, like, what? what's happening. And my my mentor, um, Kessel, recommended to me quite nicely that I should write about my own experience and bring some of my own experience into um, the work that I was turning in. And at the same time, I was also looking at, I was reading a lot of um, literary short fiction and some science fiction and fantasy short fiction. And I was learning a lot about craft. And I decided that I think the best thing that I could do in my MFA it was a very pragmatic thing was to use this as an opportunity to to hone my craft and also have that conversation with home. So I was like, okay, well, I don't usually write about being in, um being from the US Virgin Islands. Let me try writing about being from the US Virgin Islands. Let me write about people that have my background. And then also let me um, use it as an opportunity to practice my craft and get better, um, develop my skills as a writer. And so my, the very first story that I wrote that was set in the Virgin Islands was Let Them Talk. It's a chapter with Derek uh, and it talks about him working with Mira, the ambassador, the Ina ambassador. And I found, I found my voice through doing that. And then I started turning in more stories set in that world. Um, the INA came to me out of a dream that I had um, where there were aliens that had integrated into society and they were living among humans and they looked and acted like us, but they had the same kind of um, threat response that the INA have in the book where they will will occasionally respond to threat with extreme violence. And so that dream stuck with me and I when I decided to do this, this Virgin Islands experiment, I brought that, that science fiction idea to the story. And over time, as I was, I kept submitting stories, my advisors, one of them was also um, Wilton Barnhart, who's a literary writer, would keep telling me, Well, you know, you're writing a novel, right? And my response to that was always, uh I'm just, I'm just kind of like. I, I wouldn't say playing around, but I was like, i'm I'm kind of just trying to write stories. And they kept saying it, and they they said it enough that when I started looking at the work as i as they started, as pieces of it started coming together, I started to realize that there was a pattern, and that none of the stories quite stood alone, that they were trying to tell something bigger. And I sat down with myself, and I wrote an outline. and I was like, "Okay, well, if this is if there's a bigger story here, what is it?" And that eventually became the lesson. And then I did a lot of reworking of the earlier parts to make it make sense within this larger narrative that I was telling. And so I would say, maybe about halfway through the actual parts that are in the book, I made that decision. And then I was very I was very much intentional about, It being a novel after that point. But because I started as short stories, it developed this kind of um, episodic, multi-perspective structure that I've actually come to like a lot. And I write that way now. I'm working on a novel now and I'm using that same structure. I feel like it's, um, it's leaning even more into like a novel structure but it still has that multi-perspective, interconnected quality. And I think that it's really interesting to do it that way because I've I've developed this theory about narrative that it shouldn't center one person. And that just kind of came out of me doing things this way and liking it. I find that I get excited when I see stories that look at something from multiple perspectives and it's challenging The perspectives of different people within the story. If I wrote the lesson differently, I might have written it with Derek as the protagonist and it be just Derek's perspective. But I find that by having other people play around in the story and having other people challenge Derek's perspective, I think it deepens the story in ways. And it also, um, it feels more like life to me that there's not one person that's saving the day or there's not one person that's, whose story is more important than anybody else's. It's usually um, um, people's stories and conversations with each other. And so that's a really long way of talking about how this developed for me.
1: Well, it's all very interesting, everything you said. Although it sounds like the book started as a series of short stories, it definitely reads like a novel. You wouldn't know from reading it that its origin was in short stories, although it does make sense because, as you say, there are many perspectives in it and each chapter takes a different person's perspective. But on the other hand, it's so well integrated that it reads very much like a novel. So well done in your transforming and and weaving together these different
2: threads. Thank you. Thank you. And like I said, after about the halfway point, when I made that decision, the rest of the chapters, even though they still had that same structure, was um, I, I tried really hard to make it make sense in the novel structure.
1: I think it's a challenge when you have this multiple perspective storytelling mode to make every character equally rich and give them each an equal kind of self-respect and agency and compelling quality. I find sometimes when I read a book that has a lot of characters that I'm drawn towards some and not towards others. And when I get to the chapter about the ones I'm less drawn to, I'm, I'm like, oh, another chapter about this person? And I say that only because I did not feel that in your book. If I did, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have made that little commentary, I guess, but I didn't feel that. Every single character felt like someone who I genuinely had some level of caring for and interest in and wanted to know what happened to them. And I I think that's a very hard thing to do. And so kudos to you for doing it well.
2: I appreciate that. I tried my best. It's been interesting hearing people talk about the book. Some people do have favorites, and it's it's fun to um to hear people say who they think the main character is and that's been that's been a, a a thing that's kind of been like a game now in my own head when i when i'm talking to someone and they they're like well this yeah this is really derek's story or this is mira's story or, this is patrice's story and it's been like i don't know it's been fun to to kind of hear people say that and and get different people's takes on it but I'm really glad that people like enough people's stories that they stick with the whole book and they don't just abandon um, Jackson, for example, or they don't just ab- abandon Lee because some of the characters that get, um, I would say, relatively less airtime in a book are some of my favorite characters. I like the
1: way you offer an insight into the culture of the U.S. Virgin Islands, or maybe it's the West Indian culture. I mean, sort of the code switching, the language that goes on, and the Ina do it too. Amongst themselves, they'll lapse into their own language, and there's this sense of something else emerging in their private dialogue, just as there is in the dialect that sometimes comes up among the characters as well when they switch into a uh, what I I assume, well, which is a kind of... I. Virgin Island dialect, they lapse into a a less formal or just different way of speaking.
2: Yeah, that, that actually comes from my linguistics background. It was something that as I was working on the book, I was studying linguistics and we were talking a lot about code switching in different social contexts. And it was something that I wanted to show. I wanted to show in the way the story was told, but I also wanted to show among the different characters. And I have... Derek is a really good example of this. He will sometimes be very formal and use a a standard Virgin Islands English. And then when he's around people that he considers friends or he's around family, he will slip into a more vernacular English.
1: It's interesting because the use of vernacular English really solidifies or strengthens bonds among you know, a group of people and it sort of makes the Enid seem even more foreign. I don't know, somehow it just sort of amplifies how humans and maybe all sentient beings have a tendency to create within our own larger groups, smaller subgroups.
2: Yeah. And I mean language is, is the is one of the ways that we differentiate ourselves from other people, uh, from other communities. And um, even within the Virgin Islands context, you will have people have intense debates around the difference between Cruisian English, which is um, the English spoken on St. Croix, and St. Tomian English. People will have fights over it. People will debate which is better. Cruisian English, St. Tomians tend to think that they overstress their R's. And then Cruisians um, tend to think that St. Tomians are lazy in the way that they pronounce their, their, their words. And so there's a lot of, um, even among people that you would consider to be a part of the same group, because we're all U.S. Virgin Islanders, there's a lot of ways that we differentiate ourselves from each other using language. Well, that's totally fascinating, I have to say. Just a little quick update. So my best friend, actually, who still lives in the Virgin Islands, he just texted me and told me that the storm has passed. Everything's fine. They just don't have power. Uh, and we'll, we'll see how long that lasts. Sometimes it's... If the storm wasn't too bad, which it sounds like it wasn't, power will come back tonight or tomorrow. Or sometimes it'll knock out power for a few days. Um, the last hurricane, the last big one, Hurricane Irma, knocked out power to much of the island for a few months. So... Um, we'll see what happens there but everyone's fine and safe according to my friend.
1: Well that's great news. Um uh, it's, it's very nice to hear and that's perfect closure then on a on a positive note and let's hope they get electricity back soon uh to the to the Virgin Islands the US Virgin Islands. So thank you so much for coming on New Books in Science Fiction Cadwell. It was really really fun and great to talk to you.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Um, It was a pleasure.
1: My guest has been Cadwell Turnbull, author of The Lesson, which came out from Blackstone Publishing in June. You've been listening to new books in science fiction. Please subscribe to the show if you don't already and also consider leaving a review. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. The editor-in-chief and founder of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe, and the editor is Leanne Wilson. And I'm Rob Wolf. I'm the author of The Alternate Universe. Find out more about me at robwolf.net and on Twitter at robwolfbooks. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to listen.